Homosexuality was only decriminalized in Canada in May of 1969 with Bill C-150, originated by Trudeau in 68, where he said the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. And then when he became prime minister, Justice Minister John Turner ushered it into law in 69. So it was only recently decriminalized, but there was still a huge stigma about being gay. But of course, I was of the 60s, 70s generation, you know, long haired. We cut our teeth on Vietnam War protests and so forth. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 139, The Undefinable Spirit, Lest We Forget, with historian writer Hugh Brewster. Well, welcome to another edition of The Undefinable Spirit here on The Sill Podcast. Today, our special guest is writer-historian Hugh Brewster, and I'm going to give you a kind of a full-fledged intro to Hugh's background because there's so much going on there. He's worn so many hats. It's really fascinating, and we're going to have a long chat with Hugh after this introduction. So here we go on the intro. At the age of six... In 1956, Hugh Brewster's family moved to Canada from a small town in Scotland, and he spent his childhood in Georgetown, Ontario. At 13, Hugh's family moved to Guelph, Ontario, where he attended high school and university. An avid reader throughout his youth, Hugh obtained an English degree in 1971 and began his career as an editor with Scholastic Canada. And in that role, from 1972 to 1984, in both Toronto and New York, he was involved in the creation of Scholastic's Canadian Children's Publishing Program, as well as in the selecting of books for Scholastic's school book clubs. Between 1984 and 2004, he was the editorial director and publisher of Madison Press Books in Toronto, where he helped to create a number of successful books for both adults and young readers, including Robert Ballard's The Discovery of the Titanic, a book that has sold over one and a half million copies, and Titanic, an illustrated history, a book that provided inspiration for James Cameron's epic movie. Among the award-winning children's books that you edited and compiled are Polar, The Titanic Bear, On Board the Titanic, First to Fly, and Journey to Ellis Island. He authored his first children's book, published in 1996, Anastasia's album, The Last Tsar's Youngest Daughter Tells Her Own Story, a book that won numerous awards. Between 97 and 2007, he penned several books about the Titanic, including Inside the Titanic, 882 and a half amazing answers to your questions about the Titanic, as well as On Juno Beach, which won the Children's Literature of Canada Information Book Award in 2005. The success of that book encouraged Hugh to write At Vimy Ridge, which appeared in 2007 and won the Norma Fleck Award in 2008. Since devoting himself to writing full-time, Hugh has produced nine books since 2005, including The Other Mozart, The Life of the Famous Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Dieppe, Canada's Darkest Day of World War II, a second novel, Deadly Voyage, and for the 100th anniversary of the Titanic in 2012, Hugh produced a large adult book entitled Gilded Lives, Fatal Voyage. In 2014, he published From Vimy to Victory, Canada's Fight to the Finish in World War I. Hugh has worn many hats, including theatre artist. 
He studied theater at university and some years later found himself writing plays and performing on stage in different venues, including Kerner Hall for the Queen's 90th birthday in 2016 and a gala concert at Roy Thompson Hall for Canada 150 the next year. Hugh is now workshopping a play called Splash Boys, set in Toronto during the AIDS crisis. Hugh Brewster has also curated successful museum shows about the Titanic as well as the First World War, a show that was nominated for a Governor General's History Award. Welcome to the podcast, writer-historian Hugh Brewster. Gosh. <laughs> Gosh, indeed. What a CV. What a CV. Yeah, well, uh, great to talk to you both. <laughs> yes, sitting here mesmerized and about to ask you the first question, which is, beyond your professional uh, career, I understand that you were also at the vanguard of the gay liberation movement in Toronto in the early days. Can you tell us about that time, the uh, challenges the gay community faced, and how things have changed since those early days? Yes, well, things have changed enormously, and there was hardly a gay community at the time, at least not an out-of-the-closet one. Most people were afraid of losing their jobs or upsetting their families. Homosexuality was only decriminalized in Canada in May of 1969 with Bill C-150, originated by Trudeau in 68, where he said the state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. And then when he became Prime Minister, Justice Minister John Turner ushered it into law in 69. So it was only recently decriminalized, but there was still a huge stigma about being gay. But of course, I was of the 60s, 70s generation, you know, long-haired. We'd cut our teeth on Vietnam War protests and so forth. So the closeted gay world was for us. So a friend started a homophile group, as it was called in those days, at the University of Guelph when I was there. And I was part of that. And I came to Toronto and there was a conference with the U of T Homophile Association and some of the really early famous gay pioneers like Franklin Kameny and Barbara Giddings came to that. But it was a very small world, a very new thing. And so when I came to Toronto, I got involved with the second issue of The Body Politic. I was part of the first collective of The Body Politic, which was Canada's first gay liberation newspaper, Mm -hmm. and then became part of some of the other small groups and ended up in 72 being um, a part of the committee that started, that hosted the first Gay Pride Week in Toronto Mm. in the spring of 1972. And... I was at the head of the gay pride parade, marching with a bullhorn, and uh, I also went and got the parade permit, the first gay pride parade (laughs) permit. It was more of a protest than a parade, and there were only about, I don't know, 150 people, tops, on the sidewalk and on the street. But uh, that was the first, and so it was very exciting to be involved in all of that. I was very young, didn't really know what I was doing. And after I started working in publishing, I eventually drifted away uh, from being a gay activist. There were others for whom it was much more of a lifelong commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, Peter, yes? I was taken by that uh, statement. You made 150 people. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Tops, I would say. Mm, seemed like more, but no, it, it was not a big group. And a lot of people were clutching signs with a certain amount of fear. I remember um, going to get the parade permit from 52 Division when it was still on Jarvis Street. And the cop that I met with was a very nice young guy. I mean, the cops in those days were, 
often not friendly towards gay people. And even though it had been decriminalized, harassment still continued. This young cop was certainly courteous, but he was just gobsmacked. He said, do you really believe in this cause of yours? You, I said, well, yeah, and you're really going to walk down the street letting everybody know that you're that yeah. way? Uh, and I said, well, yes, that's what we're going to do. It's that um, way. So we could never have envisioned a million people on Young Street or you know, some of the things that have happened more recently in gay pride events. What a growth rate. Oh, extraordinary, yeah. No, I could never have envisioned it ever being as mainstream and as being as widespread as it is now. And so, Hugh, what are some of the challenges today that the gay community faces into that are still obstacles? Well, there is still plenty of prejudice. I mean, gay marriage is legal, but there are still lots of issues. Certainly, it's um, much improved, but it's not like we can say, oh, well, everything is fine. And of course, the trans community, which is part of the LGBT acronym, Mm-hmm. Um, face enormous uh, prejudice and stigma and the suicide rate and violence rate mm-hmm. um, there is still strong. But among gay teens, among all LGBT teens, they face a lot of reaction and there are still families who are highly resistant, particularly religious families who shun their children. My newest play, Splash Boys, is about that. And my own family was deeply religious and very devout. And so I've spent my whole life, I think, working out issues around that. Mm-hmm. I befriended a gentleman who was one of my clients, actually. He passed away before his 94th birthday. Mm-hmm. And just a tremendous guy who I really enjoyed my time with for the little time that I knew him. And he'd been born and raised in England, uh, had served during the Second World War in a very secretive type of work for the British government and so on. And it was interesting to hear him tell me how here he was in his 20s and 30s, and not only was it frowned upon, but in those days, he could go to prison. Absolutely. Hmm. People did. Yes, and it was also connected to Alan Turin, who, yeah. uh, you know, who saved God knows how many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. Yeah. And he the of the microcomputer, yeah. Exactly, and ending up miserably at the end not even given full credit for what he had accomplished. No, and he endured a chemical castration and then committed suicide. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all very recent. There's a new documentary called Cured, which is about the fight to get the American Psychiatric Association to take homosexuality off its list of psychiatric disorders. And, of course, I knew some of the people involved with that. I also knew people who went for electroshock therapy. Yes. And, uh, you know, their families were so opposed and they didn't want to be a member of this group of outcasts. And so they went for electroshock therapy and other really brutal forms of therapy. So that was a great fight. And it took a long time, over 30 years, to get full recognition of gay marriage and that we could never have imagined back in 1972. I have a quick question that may or may not be related, but I'm I'm curious about one thing quickly before Harry uh, carries on here. We talk about homosexuality, but homosexuality also deals with both genders. Why do you think that women don't seem to get anywhere near the same level of static Well, I don't know if that's altogether true. I think maybe traditionally women living together aroused less attention. I mean, I think we all remember the high school librarian who lived with the high school gym teacher in our small town. No one thought anything of it because maiden ladies, as they were called, 
living together was not quite so stigmatized. But I think lesbians would tell you that um, they face a different kind of discrimination. Men, I think, traditionally being seen as power figures in society, perhaps were more stigmatized. And if they were outed in their careers, if they were discovered Mm -hmm. uh, in prominent careers, then the scandal was fairly huge. And that is what we knew about. We only knew about gay people when the only time homosexuality was ever mentioned when it was in connection with some crime. Right. And, of course, in Ottawa, civil servants could be fired, the Maoris investigating people, and so forth. So, yeah, the, the stigma was really pretty huge. Mm-hmm. So the battle goes on still to this oh, day. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, you know, when you think that in 30 years what has happened, it's, it's all happened in a relatively short space of time. And I have to say, I think it was largely well-educated middle-class gays like me who, mm-hmm. who fought the good fight that it happened in a relatively short space of time right. within my lifetime. Hugh, from your biography here, you were an inveterate reader from a very young age. Right. And I'm a writer myself, and I always like to ask this question of other writers. When did you first know, and how did you know that you were a writer? Oh, well, it took a long time. I mean, when I started working in publishing, I became an editor, but I also, being the editorial director and publisher of Madison, I dreamed up a lot of the books. I rewrote the text, I wrote the captions and sidebars. You know, I did a lot of editorial work, but I was used to fixing other people's books. And uh, with the Anastasia book, which is the first uh, Anastasia's album, which I dreamed up, it was my idea, but I hired a writer Mm -hmm. to do it, and she was unable to finish it because of other commitments. And so I wrote it, I wrote the text and put my name on it, and it did very well. And I sort of thought, well, I like this. I like being (laughs) the center of attention. I mean, I've always (laughs) liked to write, but it wasn't until I was certainly in my 40s, that I thought, well, maybe I could be a writer. Mm. And what led you to your uh, deep interest in history, and why the Titanic in particular? Oh, well, like so many things in life, these things are often just accidental. I was always interested in the Titanic. I remember seeing the movie, the 1956 movie on TV, Mm. probably in the early 60s, called A Night to Remember, that was based on Walter Lord's phenomenal bestseller, and it was a fairly accurate movie and a fairly accurate account. But I was a young teen, and I remember watching it on TV with my brothers, and we all had a competition. Well, how would you have survived? Oh, I would have, (laughs) you know, torn a door off and made a raft out of it. it There's something so completely haunting about that story. So I read A Night to Remember, and so I was always kind of interested. And then early on in my career with Madison, when I came back from New York, there was a Toronto lawyer we knew, uh, who's still a a prominent entertainment lawyer and literary agent named Michael Levine. Mm. And he said, well, I've got this guy who says he's going to find the Titanic. And I remember Al Cummings, my partner, who was the president of Madison, sort of groaned because there was always somebody going to go and find the Titanic, and then they didn't do it. And a Texas oil man named Jack Grimm had just gone out and raised all kinds of money to make a film and then make a book about the finding of the Titanic, and he didn't find it. So he did a book called Beyond Reach, you know, <laughs> which nobody wanted. But Michael Levine said, no, 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 this guy is a top scientist. Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution is one of the top marine underwater exploration institutes in the world. 
And you should meet Ballard. He's like an astronaut. He's very charismatic. So we flew to Woods Hole. We met Ballard. We saw the equipment that he had, and he was very compelling. And I thought, boy, well, if this guy finds the Titanic, Mm -hmm. it'll be something. So we just said, well, we'd love to do this. And we explained to him that as a book producer, we could produce it simultaneously all around the world. And he liked that idea. And uh, then I remember it was Labor Day weekend, 1985, and I was at home and I got a call from Levine and he'd just heard from the exploration ship that they had found the Titanic. And that was all very exciting. And then the next day it was the front page of the newspapers and so on. But that was the last good day we had for quite a while because it was a joint French and American expedition and the French went out on the first leg and didn't find it. And then the two of the French crew members came onto the American ship. And at the very last moment, they were down to their last night before they had to go home. They actually mm-hmm. found it. Wow. But of course, all the credit went to the Americans and the French were very unhappy. And so it was a bit of a mess for a while. But then in 1986, Ballard said, well, look, I found it. I know where it is. And I'm going to go back with my submarine and go down and explore it up close and personal. And that's what he did. And we took those pictures and took them to the Frankfurt Book Fair. We took them to New York and we sold the book all over the place. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was called The Discovery of the Titanic that I worked on, oh, for at least the next year, identifying all the things that Ballard had seen on the ocean floor, working with an amazing guy named Ken Marshall, who's the world's leading Titanic artist, along with a Titanic historian. So I learned a lot from doing that, but once that book was done, I figured, well, that's it. I gave all the pictures and everything we had accumulated to, to Ken Marshall and Don Lynch, the historian, and And that was it. But then we went to the Frankfurt Book Fair after the book came out, and everybody was over the moon. It had been a bestseller. Hmm. And people didn't, I mean, the Titanic was kind of a coterie phenomenon. I mean, there were Titanic busts and so on. But it wasn't a mass phenomenon. But publishers were amazed that this book had become such a bestseller. And they said, oh, please, you know, do another book about the Titanic. People, people like it, you know. And, uh, <laughs> That's the worst German <laughs> accent I've ever heard. <laughs> so we did a children's book of Scholastic, uh, my old employer, and that did very well. And then um, a U.S. publisher said, well, couldn't you do a big, like, coffee table book? And I thought, well, yeah, I could get Ken Marshall. He's got these amazing paintings and stuff. We did a, a book called Titanic and Illustrative History. And that also did very well. It was like a $60 book, but it was beautiful, and Ken did a lot more illustration, and we got archival illustration, and... Voila! Yeah, and it was Cameron, James Cameron, loved the book, and bought it up by the caseload, and took it around to the studios, and said, with CGI rendering, which was a new Mm -hmm. thing, we can bring these paintings to life. And so he got the money and built the Titanic in Rosarita Beach, Mexico, and he hired Ken as one of his chief consultants and um, other people as well. And Incredible. of course, the press on the film was terrible. It was over budget. People said, Cameron's a maniac. The film is going to be a big disaster, just like the original. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, when I saw a rough cut of the film, I knew it wasn't going to be a turkey. I knew it was going to be incredible. I didn't know it was going to be the most popular film ever made, but I said, we'd better do some more books, because this thing is going to be huge. And it was just a phenomenon, and it made the Titanic a mass phenomenon. Mm-hmm. 
and it's never gone away. Apart from the famous Astors and the young Guggenheim, etc., and those people, who are some of the most interesting characters amongst the passengers on the Titanic? Can you give an example of one or two? Well, they're a very interesting crew, which is why I wrote Gilded Lives, Fatal Voyage, because they form this microcosm of the age, of the Edwardian age, or the Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. um, and there are so many. Archie Butt, the unfortunately named Major Butt, who was the chief White House aide to both Teddy Roosevelt and then to uh, William Howard Taft as president. And Archie kept diaries. He wrote letters to his mother and then his sister-in-law describing his life, his life in the White House, which were wonderfully written. He had a tremendous eye mm. for everything. Mm -hmm. um, in Gilbert Lives, I speculate that he was a gay man. If he wasn't, I'd be very surprised. But, of course... We don't have any smoking gun proof of that, but I've never met a straight man quite like Archie. And so, you know, he's a, an absolutely fascinating person. I also am a fan of Lady Deb Gordon, mm -hmm. who grew up in Guelph, Ontario in the 1860s as just plain Lucy Sutherland in a big house not far from where I grew up. And she and her mother and sister, her sister became Eleanor Glynn, the famous romance novelist. And they went to England and grew up there, and Lucy eventually became Lucille, the most famous fashionista of the day. Before Chanel, there was Lucille, and she hmm. invented the fashion show, invented the fashion model. Wow. She invented the craze for big hats, the Edwardian huge hats. Yeah. That was all begun by some big hats that she designed for the Merry Widow, the operetta of the Merry Widow, which was the Les Mis of its day. It was a sensationally mm. popular show and spurred a craze for enormous hats with huge ostrich feathers and so on. So that was all Seal's doing. And her story is fascinating because they were scapegoats for having escaped the Titanic in a lifeboat that was less than half full. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, theirs is a very interesting story. Lucy uh, and her husband, Sir Cosmo. Well, I just learned something new. First of all, I always thought Lucille was B.B. King's guitar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, or, the, or Lucille Ball. Yes, ex exactly. <laughs> so there was another famous Lucille. Uh -huh. Hugh, you've also written texts about aspects of both world wars, subjects that were extensively explored and written about. As a writer and historian, what prompted you to focus on those particular events? I've always been interested. The First World War, of course, follows on naturally from the Titanic. It's often seen as a warning bell for a complacent society steaming towards disaster. But it actually began in a very practical way. Scholastic, with whom I'd done a number of books, said, you know, um, there's great interest in the schools now in Canadians in war. And I thought, you're kidding. Because during the 70s and 80s, war was a taboo subject for mm. kids. You know, my generation, who were very anti-Vietnam War, we all had posters in our dorm rooms saying war is not healthy for children and other living things. So war was not thought to be at all suitable as a subject for young readers. But in the schools, there had developed enormous interest. Uh, I think with the World War II generation dying off and all of that being lost, Remembrance Day, which was very much fading as a Memorial Day, was completely revived mm -hmm. by the new generation. 
And during the Harper era, Harper was a boss of Canadians in war, and he placed emphasis on it. Yeah, all of a sudden, there was great interest in this. And there really hadn't been very many books for young readers about Canadian stories in war. And of course, World War I, we were in it for a lot longer than the Americans were. Mm-hmm. And we lost per capita a lot more people, a lot more people died than from any other allied nation. So our stories are as good as anyone's. They just haven't been given that kind of attention. So when I did Juno Beach, and again, people hadn't heard of Juno Beach, wasn't until the Juno Beach Center was set up for the anniversary with private money. Walmart Canada put up a lot of the money. Mm. It's still privately owned. The, the Juno Beach Center is not government run. The next major anniversary was the 90th anniversary of Vimy Ridge. So I said, well, <laughs> I could do a book about um, Vimy Ridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it went on from there. They were very popular. I became a sought-after speaker in schools, particularly around Remembrance Day, and it's now part of the curriculum and something that Canadians take a great interest in. So while staying on the subject of history, in this age of Wikipedia and fast food style knowledge, it seems that the study of history has waned or lost some of its appeal. Why do you think it's important for young minds to preserve an understanding of history? Well, to understand the world we live in today. It's hard to do that without understanding where we came from and how important it is, how fragile democracy is, how fragile our way of life is, and how easily that could be destroyed. And people coming here from other countries with the huge surge of immigration, people come here from countries that have had autocratic governments, that have had much less freedom, and so they come here and they appreciate Canada. So it's important. We're looking at um, history afresh, and indigenous people and others talk a lot about colonialism, and colonialism is a big part of our history. So should we ignore that? Should we overlook it, or should we come to terms with it? So I don't think that there's less interest in history. I think there's still interest in it, and particularly when it's engaging, when you can make it engaging, make it a good story. Canadians are are really interested in their own country. Speaking of memorable and historic moments, when you were at Madison Press, you would regularly make sales calls in New York, and one of the most memorable was a call on (laughs) Jacqueline Onassis in 1988, a meeting you wrote about in Zoomer magazine. Can you talk about that experience, Hugh? Oh, certainly. I dine out on that story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was remarkable. I mean, Jackie Onassis was an editor at Doubleday. We had approached her about books in the past, but she hadn't wanted to have a meeting before. But then we had a project that was of interest. So we tried various dates. And then I remember my partner, who was already in New York, saying, well, we're on with Jackie O for next week. (laughs) I said, oh, okay, that's great. I'll come down. And he said, it's for next Tuesday. That's November 22nd. I said, wait a minute. She's not going to be working that day. That's the anniversary of the assassination. Yeah. I remember it. I was in grade nine. November 22nd. Yeah, she'll be at the gravesite or the eternal flame or something. You'd better call back. So he called back and said, no, her secretary said, her assistant said that, Mrs. Onassis doesn't want that day remembered. She'd rather have his birthday remembered. So Mm. she'll be in the office. So Mm. then the meeting day was 
changed to around noon, was changed to noon. So I thought, oh my gosh, that's the actual time that it happened. Wow. We're going to be there the actual day, the actual time. Mm. And so it was, yeah, I felt very strange about it. And then as we walked into 666 Fifth Avenue, the office building where Doubleday was located, and that later became famous as the office building that Jared Kushner paid too much money for. <laughs> uh, but um, there's only one way in, there's just the main entrance. And in the lobby were all these newsstands, or several newsstands, and they all had Time and Newsweek and all the news magazines displayed face out. And so all you saw was a sea of Jackie in pink dress mm. photographs. You know? <laughs> wow. And I thought, oh my God, because it was the 25th anniversary of the assassination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, she has to walk by this yeah. every day. Mm-hmm. What is that like? Yeah, yeah. Was she everything you imagined mm. she might no, be? she was completely different. <laughs> really? How so? Yeah. You know, she was older, and I think she was 57, so she wasn't the Jackie of imagining with the big glasses, and mm. she was older, and she wasn't wearing makeup, and she was just wearing slacks, and mm. so on, and she was kind of self-effacing, and she had a rather sort of fey manner mm. about her that was... And other people have captured this as well. But I remember we were sitting in the lobby, and instead of having to go and find her office, she came out to greet you, Mm. which Mm. is very classy. And we were sitting in the lobby looking at the catalogs, and she said, oh, what are you looking at? And we said, well, we're just looking at the catalogs. And she said, oh, is that what those are? I must look at those sometime. (laughs) I mean, everybody in publishing knows what the catalog is. You work on it. It's where the new books are presented. Yeah. Of course she knew what that was. (laughs) But there was this slightly half above a loft level fey way of expressing herself. And I remember that among some women of my mother's generation. They put on a slightly artificial manner along Mm -hmm. with that in the gloves, you know. And I mean, she was very, very bright, could speak all these languages. And I I became friendly with Tish Baldridge, who had been her social secretary. And Tish became famous person in her own right, but she organized all the great events of the Kennedy White House, and I later did a book with her about that, and she said, oh, no, 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 Jackie was fiercely bright. She said, I think she may have been a little bit medicated that day. (laughs) 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 But, you know, then in the middle of our presentation, the Bells of St. Patrick's, which is just across the way and down a bit, um, started tolling loudly. And I sort of began to say, oh, that must be for the... Uh, and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, no, I better not say that. <laughs> right. just carried right on. But in that moment, I looked at her, and I think just for an instant, there was this sense of, oh, my God, 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The motorcade, the, the, the whole thing. Mm-hmm seemed to flash through her mind. Maybe I'm dramatizing the historic impact of it all. But because she was rather self-effacing and a little bit funny, it wasn't until she gave me her card, you know, Jacqueline Kennedy on Nassus, that you have a, a holy shit moment. Like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's who this is. <laughs> but in the end, basically just another human being with typical emotions and when, yeah. when, when you talk about being spaced out who knows if in part that particular day she may have been a little bit more spaced out than usual <laughs> it's entirely possible how could it not be on your mind but yeah I've met a few very famous people and they never quite live up to your fantasy and then Jackie was somebody I think 
the word iconic is overused, but I think you can certainly use that mm-hmm. that term about her, certainly for people our age who are old enough to remember the assassination. She was certainly the most famous woman in the world and a remarkable figure. It was an interesting experience. And, and just to move away into another area, another facet of your life, which is screenwriting or plays, and you're currently workshopping a play called Splash Boys. That's right, yeah. Uh, what's this play about, and uh, when do you hope to have it staged? Well, the first play, can I just talk about the first play I did? Sure. Um, I got into playwriting, even though I'd done it at university. Uh, I had done some shows tying into books that I'd done and so forth with the Mendelssohn Choir and the Allura Singers, and that has sort of gotten me back into being a bit theatrical. And then in researching my World War One books, I came across Sir Arthur Curry, who was our great commander of World War One, mm-hmm. And there was this trial that was very famous at the time where he took the Port Hope newspaper, the Port Hope Evening Guide, to court for libel for saying that he had taken the town of Mons in Belgium, which is where the Canadians were mm-hmm. on November 11th, 1918. He had simply done that for his own glory. And they wouldn't back down, so Curry took them to court so in doing my research at Library and Archives Canada, I looked up the archive of the, the transcripts of the trial. And a lot of the dialogue jumped off the page, and I thought, somebody should make a play out of this. Why has this never happened? Because hmm. this trial really put Canada's role in World War One on trial in the spring of 1928. So I decided to do it, and I wrote it, and it didn't go anywhere. Nobody was interested. And then at a Playwrights Guild meeting, I met somebody who said they did Canadian plays. I sent him the script. He said, let's do it. And then we ended up doing it in Coburg in the beautiful Victoria Hall, which has this remarkable courthouse where the actual trial took place. Hmm. So we did it there, and and I organized a whole celebration around it called Armistice 18, a, a museum show about the war. And, oh, we did all kinds of stuff, which got us nominated for a governor general's history award. And it was a great experience. And McLean's wrote an editorial saying, why is Coburg doing more to commemorate the centenary of the armistice than the Canadian government is? So that then encouraged me to carry on with playwriting. So I was having lunch with a young friend of mine who is a playwright and an actor, and I said, you know, I've got this idea for a play. It's based on a true story, a a fraud case that was fairly notorious back in the 90s about a guy who was an art collector and he was embezzling money from his clients, he was a broker embezzling money to buy art. I think that's an interesting premise for a play and then setting it against the background mm-hmm. of the AIDS crisis. Um, when a lot of gay people thought they were gonna die, it was a bit like wartime, it's like what the hell, we're all gonna die anyway. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to try and evoke that atmosphere. And then I decided to bring in religion, gays and religions. Mm-hmm. It's been a preoccupation of my life. And so one of the main character is one of the Splash Boys. Splash was a a bar in New York where attractive young guys danced in Speedos. (laughs) We didn't have one in Toronto, but I invented one for Toronto. Um, And so I work all that into the play. And I've had a few workshops, and I hope that when the theaters come back, we'll be able to put it on stage. Mm. Now, Hugh, I'd like to sort of wrap this interview up with a a kind of a difficult question, maybe, maybe not, who knows. But I'd like to sort of talk to you as an historian on the one hand, but also as someone who might have some vision for the future. So here's the question. I'd like you to project into the future. And 
I'd like you to answer the question, in years to come, how do you think we're going to look back on this time of COVID and how we handled it as a nation and as a world? Oh, boy. Yeah. That is a very good question, how we will look back on it. I mean, I think in the United States, it'll be inextricably involved with the Trump era. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's going to continue to fascinate people. He has attracted more attention than anyone else. So I think the era, the COVID era, I mean, the 1918 pandemic was really forgotten about. Mm -hmm. It wasn't evoked much until recently Mm -hmm. in light of this latest pandemic. I think it'll probably be fodder for drama and perhaps movies as well. Mm -hmm. Depending on what happens in the U.S. with Trump, whether he runs again for another term, But I think it's clear that mishandling of the pandemic led to his defeat because down-ballot Republicans were not defeated Mm -hmm. um, in many cases. So it wasn't so much his policies as his handling of the pandemic and his personality. Mm -hmm. So I think whenever that era is evoked, it'll be part and parcel of the Trump era. And people will be arguing about populism and all that sort of thing for quite a while. As far as Canada is concerned, I think it'll be similar. And it'll probably be reinterpreted, which is what history does. Uh Interpreted as a metaphor for various things. Yeah, I think we can expect dramas and screenplays. And history books. Another book for you. Yeah. Maybe. Who knows? (laughs) Before we go, this is where we like to give our guests the opportunity to give out information with regards to anything that's going to be happening, websites, contact information, so feel free. Well, I have an article in the current Zoomer magazine, which will be out in November, December, so it'll be around until January, Mm -hmm. uh, about the 1860 visit of the Prince of Wales to Canada, which was our first royal visit. And uh, all kinds of things happened. It's a very interesting story, and it's called Prince of Hearts. And I had done the research for that story as part of a theatrical presentation with music with the, uh, the Noel Edison singers that I was planning to do in Coburg. From having done the play at Armistice 18, I now have a lot of connections with Coburg, Ontario, a very beautiful historic town. And they have this remarkable town hall, a Palladian-style building that's one of Canada's most beautiful historic buildings. The volunteers who run it wanted the fundraiser and to commemorate the 160th anniversary of Victoria Hall. Mm. So I wrote a show called A Hall So Grand, which brings in all these stories, which are pretty interesting, of this town and things that have happened there over the last 160 years. And with music, we were supposed to do it this spring. And of course, it then got moved to fall and then got moved to next spring. And Mm. I suspect we may have to move it to uh, next fall. But sometime next year, I'm confident we will be doing a show in Coburg at uh, Victoria Hall and that it'll be a great experience. So stay tuned to my website, hughbrewster.ca, for information about that. I also have a book I'm selling at the moment called Unsinkable Lucille, which is a, a book illustrated by Laurie McGaugh, a remarkable illustrator that I've worked with in the past. That I hope will be out in 21 or, well, probably not till 22. But it's a children's book about Lucille, Lady Duff Gordon, a Canadian farm girl who became the queen of fashion and survived the Titanic. 
Mm. Fantastic. Thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I mm-hmm. mean, your life is fascinating from top to bottom, and we, we could probably talk for hours on end about all the incredible people you've run into, and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Thank you so much for coming on, and uh, we'll Great hopefully to talk, talk to both of you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're quite welcome. Mm, and pleasure for me, too. Okay, Peter. Thanks to both of you, and uh, take care. You as well. Take care. Take care now. Okay. Again, we'd love to hear your comments. Yeah, and an audio book could be a bonus if you contribute. Yeah, and we have a little button on our website. You just press and record. Exactly. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.